0: The future of education isn't fixed. It's made, one thought, one conversation, one choice at a time. I'm Bernard Bull, your host, and I've spent most of my adult life thinking, talking, and writing about the future of education, struggling to figure out how I can help create a more hopeful, humane, and inspiring education system. Welcome to EDU Futures, where I talk with world-class innovators, scholars, futurists, and people discontent enough with the status quo to do something about it. Are you ready? Here we go. Welcome to another episode of EDU Futures. Today I have Joachim Biviora and Lucas Cohn who are translators for a book called If Schools Didn't Exist by Niles Christie. This is a classic work, but not well known in the United States. In fact, they have brought this into the English language in their translation. And I think it's going to conjure some interesting conversations. This is a, a classic book in the philosophy of education, looking at the fundamental purpose and function of schools. And that's right, schools. One of the things that I love about this conversation And this book is that it's actually focusing upon schools and schooling. It's not looking at education and learning specifically. It's not an education book per se. Uh, It plays a really important role, and I think it has special relevance as many are pondering and making sense of the experiences they had and the rapid response to COVID in their school context. So what happens when you have this rich, vibrant, in-person learning community And all of a sudden, almost overnight, you have to shift it into an online space. Well, there were many educators who were very rapidly experiencing this sense of disconnect, that what they understood to be at the essence of what they do in education seemed to be gone because it seemed to be stripped from the school or the community. So I encourage you to listen to this interview with that lens in mind, and let's see where it takes us. Now, this interview, if you're listening to it uh, soon upon release, it's about a book that is scheduled to release in August from MIT Press. Again, it's a translation of a classic work, so you may be listening to it before the book is even available. So this might be wetting your appetite, priming you for reading it. I hope you do. I'm expecting that in six months or so, I can bring both of these scholars back on and we can have a follow-up conversation and see where this book has taken us and whether this conversation has really extended into the U.S. and other other parts of the world that um, rely pretty heavily upon scholarship in, in English. So without further ado, let's get started with our interview today. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having us. I was so excited to come across uh, your work. This title is pretty provocative and I'd love to just kind of dive into it right away. But before we do that, I always love love to give the listeners a chance to get to know the people they're listening to. So even before we dive into this this idea, if schools didn't exist, um, I'd love to give you both a chance just to introduce yourselves however you'd like.
1: Yeah, so uh, I'm I'm Joachim. And I'm a PhD fellow at the University of Copenhagen at the Department of Philosophy. And I focus, specialize in political philosophy, specifically the concept of the public sphere. So I'm very interested in theme of publicity, publicness and public life as such, both in urban sociology and architecture, but also more traditional political philosophy. Mm-hmm. And I am uh, Lucas Cohn. I am a PhD fellow at the Danish
2: School of Education, and I got my master's uh, from UCLA in comparative education, and my work focuses on questions of uh, commercial, commercialization and privatization in public education, and part of my ethnographic study that I'm conducting here in, in Denmark is examining how, uh, how the use of private services is impacting exactly the communitarian aspects of schooling. So kind of a lot of actually the things that Nils Christie is also talking about in the book.
0: Great. So let's dive into it right away. How did you get involved in this shared project together? So it came.
2: we came across Nils Christie's book in uh, 2014, I believe. There was a professor at my uh, my university that, um, that showed me this book, If Schools Didn't Exist, Black copy of the book here, um, and it's 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 really this kind of iconic classic within this uh, you know th- those strange people that still believe schools should maintain some kind of a radical or alternative function in society and not just serve the job market. Within those that that kind of thinking, I think Nils Christie has an iconic status at least in the Nordic countries. Where especially in Denmark, Norway, if you ask anyone who uh, studied to be a teacher or studied educational philosophy up through the seventies and eighties, they all know Nils Christi and they all know if schools didn't exist, "Viskolen ikke findes," which is its Norwegian title, and um, and so we we read the book. I contacted Joachim and we discussed, you know, why don't we translate this to English? I mean, it's a it's a great book. It has so much to say about. The issues that we're facing in contemporary education, not only in Denmark and Norway, but also also we believe um, the rest of the world. So yeah, we we got to it. Contacted MIT Press. They said yes, and uh, we got Judith Swissa, whose work is also very I think relevant to this book. She wrote an excellent introduction, and
1: yeah, now it's coming out here fourth of August. And I think something else that's worth mentioning is that despite being a work of radical education studies or radical democracy even it's not an obscure book in any way right as Lucas mentioned before it's very well known especially within Norway and that to me is very you don't see that very often right you don't see a book like Habermas or something like that being widely read by everyone Uh, but this actually does that and it's it's, it's very simple, S- simply structured, simply written, and yeah.
0: Interesting. So I'm wondering, um, why do you think it's taken so long for it to um, for this to happen? I mean, it's it's a wi- widely well known book within its original language, and um, uh, why hasn't it? Any speculation about why why it's taken this long?
1: It's a very good question. Uh, as far as I know, if you study uh, criminology at Harvard or something like that, uh, you will read during the first uh, terms uh, Nils Christie's uh, work on, uh, on on conflict. So that's even more, makes it even more surprising that it has not been translated, right? Because he's also widely known not for his educational thought, but for his uh, criminology around the world. So it's a good question. Yeah,
2: I don't know why either. I think, you know, in 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 a lot of the European countries, whereas in both, I think Northern America and Southern America, people like Paulo Freire, uh, Ivan Illich, other other more you know radical thinkers, critical pedagogy, that whole way of thinking, where that has maintained, I think uh, a pretty um, a pretty amount of, of followers, people that still read, even Illich and Paulo Freire. Um, in a lot of the European countries, and, you know, I know that for Denmark and Norway and Sweden as well, um, they've kind of, yeah, they've lost some of their traction over the, over the course of the last 30 years. Not a lot of people have been reading it and perhaps that's also why interest has kind of waned in perspectives like that of Nils Christie,
1: which is unfortunate. So here's a speculative thought. <laughs> um, these radical thinkers, you know, Marxism was on the rise in the 70s within political philosophy, right? And it perhaps, some would say, turned into to dogmatism, right? So these very radical thinkers uh, were on the wane and has not become popular, as you just said. But what's interesting about Christie, um, in contrast to some of the other uh, non-schoolers, so to say, is that Christie wants more school and he likes the institution, but he's just very critical of the way that it works today. So perhaps that's, that could be a reason, right? But, um, but people should definitely read Alice Christie for a more um, productive view on the, on the institution of the school
0: well let's dive into that so if you had to give your elevator speech version and then we'll go deeper from that you're invited to so someone sees this book title it's a provocative title um, and they ask you the question what is this about what's your brief sort of introduction to the book
1: so one could say that this book is not about learning it's not about education or all some of the other buzzwords it's about schools which is pretty weird considering the title <laughs> but it is actually about schools and it's about the social embeddedness or social and also political and cultural function of the school that we have in society and what it should be right
2: yeah i think there's Christie he has a, He has an excellent answer to that question because he he opens the book by saying that schools are like radars because when we look at our our, our society's schools, when we study them deeply and when we take them seriously, not just as products of a given of a given time and, and what what society wants but as as institutions that carry a profound life um, with with students and teachers engaged in finding out where they are, who they are, what they want to do and be in the world. If we take that seriously, we can not only become smarter about what education might be, which I think is kind of a one of the benefits you might get out of reading this book, which is not about education. Um, we also We also learn a lot about what society we want and what society we live in. And schools have that way of kind of Of taking in society and remixing it and turning it into something new, something different, and having that possibility of schools that can not only represent what um, a given time and place would want the kids to learn, for example, but to actually be more than that. And to be, I think this is very much in the spirit of John Dewey, to be a kind of experimental place as well, where you can also try out new ways of being, new ways of working new ways of learning. And I think that's really what Christie's book allows us to do. It's really an encouragement to keep thinking about schools as more and not less. And I think that's why it's, it's also a very, um, I would say, a very positive book. It's not as, as Joachim was saying, it's not as negative, perhaps, as one would maybe read even Illich, for example.
0: In the United States, I would say that it's quite common for people to be advocates of education over schooling today. It's, it's a popular <laughs> line of thinking in, in, in discourse where people say, uh, you know, focus. And that obviously goes back to some of the authors that you just described. This this idea that um, it's really about the learning and it's about the education more than it's about the schooling. But now this is taking us a different direction, Um, and it seems to me that one of the uh, one of the key aspects of this is that the discourse around learning and education is often sort of um, always about what's going to happen in the future. It's always about an outcome of some sort, whereas this notion of talking about community is driving us to the present. Um, any insights about and, and by the way, you're in, you're in an interesting role here because you're, you're translating this work, but you obviously are forming your own thinking um, as you're, as you're doing this really deep translation work. So feel free to weave in your own thoughts as they compare, contrast, align with, with the authors.
2: I think you know we, uh, we called our introductions to the book the Public Life of Schools. Which I think is our attempt to kind of uh, maybe present a, a more contemporary take on why we think Miss Christie is is important to read, and I actually think that goes back to your first point, which is that today education and especially in the light, you know, in light of in light of the Corona crisis, where so many schools have moved online, well, I think to many people the recent months have really are not are not just a temporary instance of. Teachers trying to make it through a crisis. That actually they're depicting what is for many the future of education, which is students sitting at home studying personalized, um, you know, studying personalized programs, going through a tablet, um, seeing online lectures, uh, and that kind of personalized non non place that I think for many is the future of education. And, of course, this is, a, this is a classic debate, you know, do we need to attend schools to learn? And this was also the question that a lot of the T-schoolers were asking in the 60s and 70s. And the answer, if you read Nils Christie, and this is why we call it the public life of schools, is that, yes, you can, you can do like Captain Fantastic. You can take your kids out of school, move them into the woods. They can learn a lot. But you lose that public life, that public dimension of encountering perspectives that force you to ask yourself, you know, to why do I want this? How can I compromise? Why, does, why don't you want this? Having that kind of dialogue and understanding of something that's not just something you would have met yourself. And that's where I think a lot of the you know, more current educational technologies, that's where they
1: probably fall short. They don't allow for that kind of question. One of the other things that's uh, nice, if I may say so, about our own title, (laughs) Public Life of Schools, is that it doesn't read the public life of public schools nor the public life of private schools, right? So this is not about public versus private funding or anything like that. That's a separate discussion that we, of course, can have also in light of Christie. But the public life is really, as, as Lucas says, something about a creation of a community um, which is materialized, right? It is in a certain place. But Christie in the book, talks also about architecture and this whole wave of opening the schools, tearing down the classroom walls, having a more open environment, right? And he says, well, that's good, but school architecture can both be good and bad. So this is really about the self-organization or self-orchestration of life that should happen within the school, for the school, and by the school, right? So, yeah, in that sense, the public life of schools is really the contrast to what we see in Captain uh, Fantastic and also the computerized version of individual learning.
2: Yeah. And, well, I think that's one of the main points, actually, that we also kind of talk about in our introduction to the book and Judith, Judith uh, Swiss as well, is this whole idea that, that when, when you open up the walls of school, like when you break down... The walls of schools then you open them up well they can be open to good and bad right I mean you can all sorts of ideas can flourish once you once you once you kind of leave aside that idea that schools must have some kind of normative educational framework, in other words that you have to have some grand idea you know and I think that's what's really the the wonderful thing about reading christie 's book is he doesn't arrive at the school with a preconceived notion of where he wants it to go or where he, what he wants you to learn. There is no program, there's no standard. What he's saying is that we need to organize the school in a way that makes it hard, that forces you to actually talk with each other about what you want, to realize that your community may have different needs than your neighboring community. And to have that kind of sensitivity to context, sensitivity to place, sensitivity to where you are, I think that's something that so many schools today don't have because they're forced to operate with standards or with technologies that are just inherently foreign, be they they in the form of algorithms or or standardized tests that come from the outside. So for Christy, the main concept is really this idea of pedagogical possibilities. That's what he keeps talking about. That was a main concept of his in his criminological work. This idea that having spaces to meet is in itself a pedagogical possibility. And that's what he's really talking about in the book.
1: So if I can just follow up on that. So Christy in the book does not like administration and does not <laughs> like bureaucracy. So he talks about that all the time, tear down all these um Uh, middle leaders or what do you call them? But the interesting thing is, as Lucas just said, is that he does not say, this is what it should be. He says somewhere in the book that, I mean, if people like bureaucracy, and if they decide to say, this is the most effective way of organizing our school, then feel free to have a bureaucracy, right? And that's One of the most radical things about Christie, he says, you can organize it in any way you want. You do not have to, I guess he would say, orchestrate your school as a a direct democracy. You can have representative democracy or you can have any other kind of organization, right? Of course, there's a meta layer to that discussion because he would say, Well, as soon as the community decides to say, we want another form, they should be free to have that. right? So there's a a thought of democracy there, but but when it comes to the implementation of, of certain
0: rules, it's up to the community. I'm reminded of a book that's about higher education But uh, it's David Laboree at uh, Stanford University who wrote a book called uh, The Perfect Mess, The Unlikely Ascendancy of American Higher Education, where he argues that the the beauty of the American higher education system is its lack of centralization, is its messiness, is the contextualization, the fact that there are all of these Uh, Grand or not so grand experiments that are succeeding and failing in different ways, and that the perfect way to destroy the education system would be to standardize it and to sort of, you know, put it into this industrial mechanistic uh, system. And um, it it seems to me that in some ways, Um, Now although library I would say is pretty traditional in terms of his own approaches to education But at least this notion seems to have some parallels to the book you're talking about here Mm -hmm. I'd like to go back to this question before because I I do think it's an intriguing and important one and maybe Christy is um, Is somewhat silent on it, but this idea of present versus future and and the school I'm wondering if you can just speak to that
1: Yes, so one of the main themes in Christi is also the function of the school, right? What should the school do and what is the school doing? So there you have the present and the future, right? He's he's radical in the sense that he says, okay, if we reform the school by saying that the school must do whatever it wants, then the obvious question would be how do you assess whether people can get into the good schools, right? You must need some admission test that is fair and equal for everyone. And you don't have that if Christie gets his way, right? If you have a very very variegated landscape of institutions that do not conform in in any sense, how do you know who would get into the good school and how do you know who would get very uh, nice positions in in the society and earn money and things like get influence things like that right but (laughs) christy does not have a solution to that i would say he says well maybe it's better because you know the thing that decides whether people get into the good schools anyway is the parents and the money and so on and so forth you know where this is going right so he would say, well, we would make such a great mess for the future, but it would be a better mess than what we had before. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and I think he has a great example in the book. I think that really summarizes in a lot of ways what he, what he thinks about schools, where he, he's asking rhetorically, how come, how come eighth graders in so many schools Are are struggling to find relevant things to work with, relevant things to read, when they can walk across the street and help the local nursery home or another place paint their walls, um, when they can repair the local playground. You know, there's a host of, of activities, of relevant problems to solve, things to do in right where you are, right? and i think with those kinds of examples what what he's really trying to do is exactly to show that well the question about what should schools do what are schools doing the distance between those maybe isn't that isn't that great you know that forcing to ask yourself you know what are we doing right that that's a, that's actually not a very easy question to answer because if we have to answer that we're going to have to be forced to actually try to, we're have to legitimize what are we doing? Why are we doing this? And in an educational, I think there's a tendency in a, lot of, in a lot of education systems to not ask that question because you don't have time, you don't have resources, you're not allowed in some places. And really lingering in that moment of asking yourself, what are we doing and how is this making sense to the people doing it? That's Christie's purpose of the book, I think. In that way, you don't really get that kind of future. um,
1: Yeah. That's one of the frustrating things about reading Christie, right? (laughs) You don't get an answer. Like, (laughs) what is the answer, right? And the very last chapter, chapter six in the book, is just three pages where the first sentence goes something like this. Well, you would probably like uh, sum up... uh, you know me to sketch the results of the book, but instead I will tell a story. And then he tells a story about a school where there's a self-organization where people who are not were considered as not normal live normal lives because of the surroundings. And that is maybe not the morale, but it is the philosophy of Christie, right? Saying that. I cannot give you an answer to how the school should look like. You must find out that yourself. And then stop coordinating and telling other people to have a specific purpose. And that can be both from the left and the right, right? Don't tell people that they should live a radical democratic life if they don't want to. And don't tell people that they should live according to some doctrine or Bildung or whatever it may be, right? Don't tell people to become engineers if they don't want to be engineers or to solve the grand challenges or something like that.
0: Yeah, that's the part that intrigues me because it really does seem to drive us back to the present. And maybe that's just my own framing of this, but uh, it does drive us to this. So much of education is about getting people ready for something down the road. But my understanding, even from our conversation here, is that the focus is really upon a present shared creation of a community. Um, and it's not about outcomes. It's not about standards. There may be outcomes and there may be standards that emerge, but it's actually about the present community. I think that's a really incredibly relevant conversation today. And I suspect that the book is going to have uh, it, I hope that it will be well received and it'll gain some attention. I do believe that I, I'm working, for example, with a group of 17 K-12 school leaders just on a little volunteer work because they're trying to figure out how to respond to COVID because they all had to move virtually for a series of months to end out their school year, things like that. And the the consistent, the consistent lamentation of the faculty, or of, the, of the teachers in particular, is this loss of community. Mm-hmm. And uh, w- what's interesting to me is I'm not sure if the way I, I hear them using, if it's the loss of community for themselves or the loss of community for the students or both. Um, but regardless, I think that this is a great time for the book to release because people might be um, there might be fertile soil uh, for them to for the seed to be planted.
1: hmm. Well, we can definitely hope so.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, these interviews go so quickly, believe it or not. That was already half an hour. And um, I'm really excited about this coming out. I'm hopeful that it will provoke some good and important conversation. So thank you for your work on this. And and maybe in six months or something like that, after the book releases, if you're open to it, it'd be great to have you back and, and uh, get a sense of what kind of response there's been and how people are talking about it.
2: Yeah, we'd be happy to. Keep, keep our conversation going.
1: It's been great. Would be very great, yeah.
0: Wonderful. Thank you again. Thank, Thank you, you for having
1: us. Thanks.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of EDU Futures, where we agree with Bucky Fuller when he wrote, You never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Check out show notes and other episodes at futurist.fm forward slash Futures.